they have already been through three wardrobe changes. They got up this morning, they got dressed to come to church, and then when they got to church, they took off those clothes and they put on those white baptismal robes that have been worn for decades in this congregation. And after being immersed in these waters of baptism, they stepped out into the slippery hallway on the tile floor, dripping wet, walking into the choir room, and they took off those white robes and they put back on their church clothes and came quickly back into the sanctuary to join us. Good job, kids. Three wardrobe changes before lunch, okay? A change of wardrobe is really what baptism is all about. It's about taking off one's old clothes and putting on some new ones. Paul writes to the people in the early church, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And that's what our young people have done today. They have decided after weeks of sitting with their faith mentors, after sitting side by side in the youth center, after listening to Tyler and the other pastors teach, they have decided what all of you decided to, to put on Christ. You know, young people are particularly good at this. Anyone has ever spent time with a toddler knows that one of her or his first acts of independence is to say to the parent or the grandparent or the babysitter, I am not wearing that. No way. Mm-mm. Not going to. One of the toddlers in our household used to refuse to wear underpants. Somehow it was that they were too much of a bother. They bother me. No, I am not wearing them. It was an all-out battle. You know, then this resistance to wearing what mom and dad wants, that reemerges for teenagers. There seems to be in every generation some kind of fashion that comes along that teenagers love and parents abhor. You cannot go out of the house wearing that, the parent says to the teenager. And the teenager looks at mom and dad straight in the eye and picks up the car keys and walks out of the door wearing that. And you know, I'm not sure that this is really a modern phenomenon because maybe 20, 25 years ago, I visited a woman in the congregation on the occasion of her 100th birthday. And she told us the most amazing stories about her growing up years. And she recalled that it was forbidden for young women to go to the dance wearing a sleeveless dress. And so she and her friends sewed on their sewing machines these little cap sleeves with the little elastic piece at the top and the bottom, and they would put the cap sleeves on their dresses, and as soon as they got out of sight of mom and dad, they would discard the cap sleeves and go to the dance wearing the sleeveless dress. Maybe it was true in the day of Jesus, too. What we wear is a sign of our own choice, our own independence, our own lifestyle. And so Paul writes to the people at that church in Colossae and tells them, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, humility, and forgiveness. He is reminding them of the wardrobe they chose to wear when they were immersed themselves 
into the waters of baptism. I love how scholar and pastor Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his own version of the Bible. He says, this is the wardrobe God picked out for you to wear. Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, forgiveness. But it's not just about how we look. The Christian life cannot be faked. You cannot look kind on the outside only. You cannot go through the motions of compassion. People see right through that. You cannot pretend to forgive. And so this passage to the early church goes on to talk about how we need a makeover on the inside as well. Above all else, clothe yourselves with love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. One scholar says here that the issue is how we will dress our souls. I guess, I guess the problem is this wardrobe, it's uncomfortable. Regardless of whether you are a toddler or a teenager or, or old enough to be a grandparent, oh yeah, you can reach into the closet. It, it's easy enough to put on kindness. It's easy enough to wear the cloak of compassion. But sometimes when we put on the garment of forgiveness, it feels all wrong. We might try it on at the store and think, well, it looks kind of nice. But we get home and we don't even cut off the tags. We quickly return it. We don't want to wear forgiveness. Okay, maybe we keep it. Maybe we wear it for a few months. But eventually, we take it off. We crumble it up and we put it in the goodwill pile. We don't need this one. Forgiveness can feel scratchy. It can bind in all the wrong places. For the six weeks of Lent, we've been talking about forgiveness, and some of us have gone out after church into the parking lot or into the parlor over a cup of coffee, and we have said, well, I can't forgive Putin. What about Hitler? Can't forgive Hitler. And what about my brother-in-law, my ex-brother-in-law? Uh-uh, no. You fill in the blank. There is someone that is hard to forgive. We have pushed back and said, sometimes forgiveness just doesn't seem to fit. Forgiveness can feel impossible. In fact, while I was writing this sermon, my phone rang. I don't try to pick up the phone while I'm writing, but I did pick it up. And the person on the other end of the line said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing a sermon. And they said, what about? And I said, forgiveness. And they said, oh, that one's not for me. Nope, 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 nope. Sometimes it seems impossible because sometimes we get confused about what this garment means. So let me be clear. Forgiveness is not the same as condoning evil. To forgive someone does not mean that we will not hold them accountable for the actions they have taken. If you cheat on your taxes, you will repay the IRS. If you slap someone in the face, you will accept the censure that comes. And secondly, to forgive does not mean that we will live happily ever after. Sometimes forgiveness does lead to a renewed relationship, and sometimes it means you forgive and then you go your separate ways. Lovers break up, marriages end, siblings are not always the best of lifelong friends. Sometimes distance is the healthiest way for everyone. And thirdly, forgiveness does not mean 
forgetting. Sometimes remembering the pain is essential to carving out a new path of life that is healthy for everyone. So if it's not that, how do we forgive in real life? How is it that a man named Nelson Mandela went into a prison cell on Robben Island in South Africa as a bitter, angry man and came out decades later and was elected president of South Africa. And at his inauguration, he invited one of his jailers, one of the prison guards on Robben Island to sit in an honored place on the stage. Colossians says, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Maybe you read Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables. Maybe you saw the play on Broadway. And so maybe you remember that scene that seems like forgiveness unfolds more as a gift or as a miracle than anything else. It is that scene where the ex-convict Jean Valjean takes refuge in the home of a bishop. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean, the ex-convict, flees and he takes with him stolen silverware, sterling silverware that belonged to the bishop. And the police arrest Jean Valjean as he flees and they bring him back into the bishop's house. And instead of scolding Jean Valjean for abusing the gracious hospitality and instead of criticizing him for despising the generous care that the bishop offered him, instead the bishop says to the police, oh yeah, that silver. I gave him that, and I'm so glad you came back because you forgot the silver candlesticks here on the mantle. As the two men are about to part, the bishop says to Jean Valjean, who he just forgave and set free, he says, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from the dark and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it over to God. Jean Valjean leaves not just forgiven, but transformed and forever changed, so much so that Jean Valjean is able to go forth to forgive those who have wronged him, including the prisoner guards, including the police who wrongly accused him. Our human forgiveness is tied to the forgiveness of God. When Colossians says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, it is not a tit for tat. It is not a threat. It is not saying, if God forgives, then you must forgive. No, rather, it is an invitation to see God's forgiveness and our forgiveness as somehow the same, connected to let the forgiveness of Christ dwell in our human flesh. In his book on forgiveness called Free of Charge, Mirzlav Volf writes, the only reason we can forgive is because Christ is in us. Christ lives in us. Christ forgives through us. Our forgiveness echoes God's forgiveness. So when we forgive, we are not using our own brilliance 
our own mind, our own might, we are letting God's forgiveness be revealed in our fragile human lives. We mirror the grace and the kindness and the compassion of God that has already been given to the world. Here's, here's a simple way that Volf says it that makes a lot of sense to me. Imagine a document of forgiveness that God has signed. When we forgive, we add our name underneath God's signature. We add our name. When I think about the moments in my own life when I was finally able to forgive someone, and I mean someone I had held a grudge against for decades, when that moment finally came, it felt more like a gift than a choice. Oh, I wanted to forgive, but out of the blue, something happened that so surprised me and filled me with so much joyful gratitude, so much thankfulness that holding on to the grudge no longer seemed like the logical thing to do, and so I released it. It was a gift, pure and simple, and the same is true when forgiveness came to me from someone I had done something utterly ridiculous towards. When the moment of forgiveness came to me from another, it felt more like a divine gift than a decision more like a miracle than an act of the will. And yet, we as human beings get a choice in the matter. Here, we see every week that beautiful gold cross. Maybe you wore one today. Maybe you have one in your home. Notice that it has both a horizontal and a vertical plane. The vertical can be a reminder of our individual relationship with God. And the horizontal plane, the cross bar, can be a reminder of our relationship with every single person in our lives and in the world. And in the middle, the two intersect. Because the forgiveness poured out on us from God, which we did not deserve, can spill over into our relationships with those folks around us who also do not deserve grace but we give it anyway. If God has lavished on us more than is due, then why do we continue to keep score with those around us? What are we to do with the undeserved kindness and compassion that God has given to us? When that gift intersects with the lives of those around us, how will it change our relationships? And then we come to this day to Palm Sunday, and we read about the palm branches, for sure, that's why we call it Palm Sunday. But we also read that when they placed their palms on the ground for Jesus to walk, they also took off their cloaks and laid their cloaks on the ground along with the palm branches to pave the way for Jesus to parade into the holy city. Those early followers placed their cloaks on the ground. They participate in the forgiveness of God by placing their cloaks down into the dirt so that the one who is the author of all love, the, the great forgiver of all time, the embodiment of grace, can come into the holy city on a path paved with human garments. author of StoryCorps, who has 
listened to thousands and thousands of stories, was once interviewed by Krista Tippett. And he said there are four things that need to be said when we are about to die or when someone we love is about to die. The four things. Thank you. I love you. I forgive you. Do you forgive me? Maybe that's what the crowd said to Jesus on Palm Sunday when they took off their cloaks and laid them on the path so that Jesus could walk, knowing that his death was days away. They were saying, thank you, I love you, I forgive you, do you forgive me? John Ortberg was backstage in the kind of the green room, the holding room before the college graduation of his daughter. She was graduating from a university in California and John Ortberg's wife was going to give the commencement speech. And so they were gathered with the university president, the university dignitary, the valedictorian, and three students were brought back there into that room and they were introduced to the whole crowd. And the university president said these three who are about to graduate are going to give their lives to public service. They are going to use their degrees serving in impoverished areas with under-resourced folks. And then he turned to the three students and he said, someone that you do not know, someone that you have never heard of has decided to help you with your education because they so believe in you and what you're doing. And this person wants you to be able to serve the world without impediment, without worry. And so this person that you do not know has given you a gift. And he turned and looked at the first student and he said, you have been forgiven your college loans of $105,000. And she began to cry. And then he turned to the next student and he said, you have been forgiven your debt of $70,000. And he turned to the third student and said, you have been forgiven the $130,000 that you owe. And all of the students wept and trembled. And all of us are one of them. Because each of us has an unseen giver in our lives. Every morning we wake up fresh and new and we go when we open the closet door and we look at what is clean and what is pressed and what is ready to wear. And we can choose revenge and resentment and bitterness. The clothing is pressed and ready to wear. Or we can reach and pull out the cloak of forgiveness and pave the way for the risen Christ to appear in our midst. The choice. Sars.